Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Plunge Yourself into Obscurity, The Hidden Years of the Boy Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 27, 2009. Scattered throughout our house are a number of baby pictures of our three children. Is that what they really looked like 20 years ago? Having just considered the baby Jesus of Christmas last week, it's fascinating to ask a question that we really can't answer. What did Jesus look like? The earliest frescoes from the 3rd and 4th century, for example, picture Jesus with short hair and clean-shaven. Only later images portray him with a beard and long hair. If you were white, American, and Protestant, your images of Jesus were probably influenced by one of the most reproduced pictures ever. It's called The Head of Christ, 1940, by Warner Salman. One scholar estimates that Salman's saccharine image of Jesus with blondish hair, blue eyes, and fair skin has been reproduced over 500 million times. You can even find this reproduction not only in America, but in churches around the world. Salman's painting is a reminder of the chronic temptation to create Jesus in our own image, according to our own time, place, and culture. But Jesus is far more elusive than we might wish. We not only don't know what he looked like, one of the curious features about the Christian story is that we don't know anything about Jesus before he began his public ministry around the age of 30. It's only an inference that he followed his father Joseph as a carpenter. Scholars speculate whether he went to school. He left not a single scrap of writing. The Gospels of Mark and John don't even include birth narratives, but begin with Jesus as an adult. Still, it's hard not to speculate, especially when you consider that Mary assuredly told stories about her son. And so, in the centuries after Jesus, an entire genre of so-called infancy narratives emerged to embellish the missing or hidden years of Jesus with fanciful legends. In the infancy gospel of Matthew, animals speak at Jesus' nativity. In the infancy gospel of Thomas, which Anne Rice utilized in her fictional novel, Christ the Lord, from 2005, Jesus curses a playground bully who consequently dies, and then he raises him to life with a spontaneous wish prayer. He turns clay pots into flying birds. In the Arabic infancy gospel from the 6th century, Jesus' diaper heals people, and his sweat cures leprosy. Other fables claim that when Jesus was 12, he sailed to England with Joseph of Arimathea and built a church near Glastonbury to honor his mother Mary. Or that between the ages of 12 to 30, he studied in India, Persia, or Tibet. 
Most of the early church rejected these fables about Jesus as spurious. Instead, they followed the lead of the gospel writers by contenting itself with ignorance and silence about Jesus' early years. Their reticent and restraint about the hidden years of Jesus are remarkable, and reminders that the early believers were not gullible or naive when it came to sensationalist exaggerations about miracle stories. We do, however, have one brief exception to our otherwise total ignorance about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Luke's Gospel for this week records the only canonical story we have about the years between Jesus' birth and his public ministry. And it's much more prosaic than we might wish. It's the story of the 12-year-old Jesus in the Jerusalem temple. Luke writes that every year Joseph and Mary made the 150-mile round trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, about 20 miles into the return trip home to Nazareth, his parents discovered that Jesus was missing from their caravan of family and friends. Any parent can imagine the terror they must have felt when they couldn't find their son, After a second day to return to Jerusalem, on the third day they found the boy Jesus in the temple. We read in Luke, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. When Mary rebuked Jesus, it became apparent that he was not accidentally lost, but that he had deliberately stayed behind. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Mary and Joseph didn't understand this mysterious response. And the text concludes that after their safe return to home, Jesus was obedient to them. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Two points in Luke's simple story deserve mention. Luke reminds us that Jesus was a normal boy who experienced genuine human development, physically, mentally, morally, and spiritually. Jesus' authentic humanity is precisely what the legendary infancy narratives obscure and deny. Secondly, the story also hints at the emerging tension between Jesus' filial identity with God the Father in his willing obedience to his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. Eventually, his obedience gave way to a radical disruption. For by the time of his public ministry, his own family tried to apprehend him, and the entire village of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. But that's all. These two points do nothing to fill in the 30 years of silence about the hidden years of Jesus. I like to imagine that Jesus' earthly life was so insignificant, so prosaic, so secluded in obscure Nazareth that there was nothing relevant to report. If we let Jesus' silent years stand at face value, instead of filling them with some ostensibly deep meaning. They speak volumes in our media-saturated world of celebrity culture, 
self-promotion, and endless noise. His hidden years point to a countercultural spirituality of invisibility and obscurity. For most people today, and Christians are by no means an exception, personal identity and fulfillment depend upon being well-known, not unknown, visible and not invisible, honored rather than ignored, important instead of insignificant, and in demand rather than out of commission. But when I consider how thoroughly invisible Jesus was for 90% of his life, leaving no footprint of who he was or what he did during those years, I'm attracted to a spirituality of obscurity, seclusion, and hiddenness. Most of us live hidden and unheralded lives. We live, die, and then we'll be forgotten to history. We'll be lucky if even our grandchildren remember us. My friend Betsy is a stay-at-home mom who left a career as an attorney to cook, clean, do laundry, and chauffeur five kids to the dentist, to school, to birthday parties, and sporting events. Her husband enjoys a prestigious career. We're Claudette. She raised a family but now lives alone in a tiny apartment as an elderly widow. Or my friend Dan, who was a high-flying business executive who's been unemployed for two years after the economy cratered. Some believers even choose hiddenness. The fourth century monastics fled the corruptions of crowded cities to seek Jesus in the vast solitude of the Egyptian desert. The Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, spent 27 years cloistered in Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, but nevertheless spoke to the entire world with his prophetic writings. In his memoir, The Road to Daybreak, Henry Nouwen describes why he left his professorship at Harvard to live and pray among the developmentally disabled. And when I visited Liberia in 2006, I was reminded how entire countries remain invisible to the world because they're so insignificant to the geopolitical calculus of the day. For Christians, the delicious paradox is that the missing 90% of Jesus' life, no matter how completely lost to history, was not lost or hidden to God. Not by a long shot. Nor is my life or your life. Liberia, Congo, and Darfur are not hidden to God, even though the world ignores them. After raising six kids and then experiencing a divorce, my mother lived by herself for 33 years. But none of those years were lost or hidden to God. With Hagar, the slave who was banished to the desert, we can name Yahweh, quote, the God who sees me. In fact, her child bore a special name, Ishmael, which in Hebrew means God hears, Genesis 16. God sees and hears. He loves and cares. He 
doesn't ask us to lament or transcend our invisibility to the world. He might even disrupt our lives by inviting us to try it. The Apostle Paul writes that our true life is, quote, hidden with Christ in God. He described himself as, quote, known yet regarded as unknown. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus calls us to give, to pray, and to fast, quote, unquote, in secret, because the unseen Father sees what is done in secret. However hidden and obscure our lives might feel, whether literally or figuratively, whether voluntary or involuntary, in that very hiddenness, God is redemptively present, just as he was with a 12-year-old Jewish boy in an obscure Palestinian village. And now for further reflection. Consider the poem from Boris Pasternak. Pasternak lived from 1890 to 1960. The title of his poem is To Be Famous. Boris Pasternak, To Be Famous. Creation calls for self-surrender. Not loud noise and cheap success. Life must be lived without false face. Lived so that in the final count we draw unto ourselves love from space. So plunge yourself into obscurity and conceal there your tracks. But be alive, alive your full share, alive until the end. And then finally, two stanzas from a poem by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry was born in 1934. The title of the longer poem is Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Here are the last two stanzas. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. <clears throat> For books this week, I review Anthony Everett. The title, Hadrian and the Triumph of Rome, New York, Random House, 2009, 392 pages. With critically acclaimed biographies of Cicero and Augustus to his credit, Anthony Everett completes his triptych with a biography of the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who was born in the year 76 and died in 138. It's a natural project for him in more ways than one. The book jacket indicates that Everett lives near Colchester, England's first recorded town, mentioned by Pliny the Elder in 77 AD, 
and founded by the Romans after they conquered Britain in 43 AD. Orphaned at the age of 10 when his father died, Hadrian became emperor of the empire's 60 million people in the year 117 when he was 41 years old. His was the age of the Jewish revolt, the sack of Jerusalem in its temple, the Circus Maximus racecourse whose marble stands held 250,000 people, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius that buried Pompeii, the opening of the fabled Colosseum with its gladiatorial games, and militarist expansion that created an empire without end, Imperium Sine Fine, that stretched from Spain to Persia and from North Africa to Northern Britain. The prime challenge facing the biographer of Hadrian, Everett admits, is the inadequacy of the leading literary sources. As a consequence of this, in his narrative, Hadrian doesn't even become emperor until halfway through the book, the focus being the larger background material of Roman life and politics. I appreciated Everett's candor about what he considers historical fact or fiction in the ancient sources, and he's more than willing to speculate, but he always tells you when he does. The result is a portrait of Hadrian as an architectural enthusiast, if an amateur who irritated the experts, a poet, a dedicated hunter, a constant traveler who spent over half his 20-year reign on the road, and a deeply superstitious man of religion, magic, astrology, and Greek initiation rites. Although married to his wife Sabina, Hadrian had a long and deep love for a young man named Antinius, whom he met when the latter was 15 years old. His villa near Tivoli contained at least 40 statues of Antinius, and across the entire empire, archaeologists estimate that there were at least 2,000 images of various sorts of Hadrian's boy love. Hadrian deserves special credit for two accomplishments in Everett's book. First, and despite significant political opposition, Hadrian decisively stopped Rome's aggressive policies of military expansion. And he even relinquished the lands of Armenia, Mesopotamia, Assyria, and Parthia that his predecessor Trajan had annexed. And second, Hadrian was a lover of all things Greek. And during his reign, he managed through various means to unite the empire's Greek-speaking East and Latin-speaking West. Everett thus concludes that Hadrian has a good claim to have been the most successful of Rome's leaders. The book concludes a comprehensive timeline of Roman history in numerous black and white plates. Anthony Everett, Hadrian and the Triumph of Rome. For film this week, I review a recent rele recently released movie, The Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, from 2009. This film might be worth watching only because Werner Herzog directed it, 
and Nicolas Cage does a remarkable job of acting as Lieutenant Terence McDonough. Set in post-Katrina New Orleans, Terence is a manic and deeply corrupt crackhead cop who leads an investigation into the slaughter of a family from Senegal. He does bad to do good, which is hardly an original idea, of course. And by the end of the film, his vigilante justice and self-destructive addictions haunt him, as do his enemies. What little plot there is in the movie struggles. The film never decides whether it's a character study of Cage or a murder mystery to solve. Significant tensions that build throughout the narrative find easy resolution. Terence's problems, and they are many, simply melt away. As a Herzog film, there are surreal moments with animals that are interesting but awkward. A snake slithers in the urban floodwaters in the opening scene. A fish in a glass of water has a poem written about it. Alligators cause freeway crashes. Iguanas roam about a room. A white lab dog needs a babysitter. And in the very last scene, Cage sits in front of an aquarium and wonders aloud, Do fish dream? Are these Cage's crack hallucinations? Or maybe Herzog's satirical humor? It's hard to tell. The title of the movie, The Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by Ephraim of the 4th century. The title of his poem, or hymn, From, Christ, from God, Christ's Deity Came Forth. Saint Ephraim the Syrian, Hymns of Faith. From God, Christ's deity came forth, his manhood from humanity, his priesthood from Melchizedek, his royalty from David's tree. Praised be his oneness. He joined with guests at wedding feast, yet in the wilderness did fast. He taught within the temple's gates. His people saw him die at last. Praised be his teaching. The dissolute he did not scorn, nor turn from those who were in sin. He for the righteous did rejoice, but bade the fallen to come in. Praised be his mercy. He did not disregard the sick, to simple ones his word was given, and he descended to the earth, and his work done went up to heaven. Praised be his coming. Who then, my Lord, compares to you? The watcher slept, the great was small, the pure baptized, the life who died, the king abased to honor all. Praised be your glory. The title of the hymn or poem, From God Christ Deity Came Forth, by Ephraim the Syrian. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net 
For the last Sunday of the year, December 27th, 2009, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.